Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Hokies Press Pass Podcast. Alongside Andy Bitter, the Virginia Tech football beat writer for the Roanoke Times, this is Aaron McFarling, sports columnist for the Roanoke Times. And we were both at that Clemson game on Saturday night. It was a heck of an atmosphere. It did not turn out well for the Hokies. Uh, we'll get into that matchup, and then we'll move forward and talk about the uh, Boston College matchup coming up this weekend. Andy, I think, you know, the fireworks exploding, the inner Sandman. I got an email. It's funny. I got an email from a friend of mine who's a, a tech fan, actually used to work at the paper, but now no longer does. And he said, you know, tech has a top 10 entrance, top 10 atmosphere, top 10 fan base, but it's still a top 25 program. And I think the talent disparity maybe showed itself on Saturday night. What did what did you think about that? Uh, yeah, I, I think maybe I would agree with that whole assessment right now. Uh, you know, Justin Fuentes coached 19 games at Virginia Tech. I don't know if you're necessarily going to turn it back into a top 10 program overnight like that. Uh, I think what was obvious was, you know, Dabo Swinney's in his ninth year and has had Clemson rolling for a while, and that team is exceptionally talented and, and very, very good. I think it was obvious there was a, a difference between the two teams on the field the other night. Uh, you know, Clemson has been in that sort of uh, spot before on the big stage, uh, has performed admirably on the road, winning those types of games, just sort of you know stomping the life out of opponents before they had uh, can get going on the road and Virginia Tech looked like a team that was not quite ready for prime time uh you know offensively i think there's a lot of work to do especially with those skill guys on the outside and finding other playmakers other than Cam Phillips uh defensively i think they played okay they, you know still didn't tackle great on the quarterback sometimes and that really hurt them I uh, had a, a miscue early that led to that 60 yard touchdown the, the defensive coverage bust that they had uh, so the, just overall, just sort of an average night, I think, from Virginia Tech, maybe even a little below average in terms of execution and things like that. You can't play like that against a team as exceptional as Clemson. You need to bring your absolute A game if you're even going to have a chance to compete with them, and Virginia Tech didn't. And, you know, it was a 14-point outcome, but the, the game was not that close. I mean, it was a 21-point lead in the fourth quarter, and, and Clemson was well in command. Yeah, I was going to say, I never thought Tech really posed a threat. And that was, I think, if you're a Tech fan, that was probably the most disappointing part is that you di you didn't even really get a half of football where you felt like they were in the game. Uh, Clemson was so in command. Uh, defense travels, as they say, and the defense definitely traveled for Clemson. Um, I thought it was interesting that usually after these kinds of games, you know, the, the coaches will say, and at, at any program, not just Virginia Tech, they'll say, well, we knew what they were going to do. We just couldn't stop it or we didn't execute. One thing Justin Fuente said the night of the game after the game was, yeah, we didn't actually expect them to play that defense the way they did. They We thought they'd be attacking more than they did, and uh, they kind of sat back and used their front four as their as their battering ram up front. They didn't need to do a lot of fancy things in order to, to get uh, the disruption. <coughs> What did you think about that? I mean, is that uh, is that what you saw too? Because I, I I kind of agree with that. It looked like a lot of screens and a lot of uh, uh, you know attacking the perimeter. Those are the types of things you do if you're trying to beat blitzes and things, and and they weren't working. 
Yeah, well, I, I think part of the luxury that Clemson has is the defensive line is so good that they don't have to go all out mm-hmm. on those blitzes. I mean, it, every one of those four guys in the defensive line probably could have commanded a double team. Obviously, you can't do that. <laughs> you don't have that many guys on the line. So, you know, you commit a bunch of, guys, bunch of guys to stopping Dexter Lawrence because, you know, when you're 6'4", 340 like he is, you need to put those guys on there. He's just going to blow up the play from the start. You know, that frees up, uh, you know, Cleveland Farrell one-on-one on the outside. Austin Bryant had a great game at uh, the, the other defensive end spot. He's really good, but he's not that good unless Dexter Lawrence is com- commanding that much attention. So, uh, yeah, I, I think Clemson was just able to go with those four guys up front. They didn't have to bring the house. And that's really when you get more effective on those screens is when you catch a team, you know, coming after the quarterback a little too hard. And then all of a sudden you get it on the perimeter. You have numbers. You can get downfield. So, you know, I think people would maybe be upset with the play calling and the screens and stuff like that. That's sort of this offense. You know, when it's working against teams like ECU, it, it looks really pretty, and and you're going up and down the field like that. Uh, Clemson's a really, really good defense, and yeah, I, I really don't know how you attack it. Quite honestly, people are like, oh, you have to throw it downfield. Well, there's not enough time to set up in the pocket and throw it downfield, and even if you do. Guys aren't open downfield because the secondary is pretty good too. So it's sort of a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. I, I don't know exactly how you attack that team, but the fact that Clemson also had them a little bit, uh, you know, off guard, caught them a little off guard in terms of what they were doing. I think that just made matters even worse offensively for the Hokies. Well, we'll talk about this maybe a little bit more when we get to your poll this week. But uh, who's going to beat Clemson? I mean, who is uh, is capable of matching up with them? I mean, I know Boston Alabama. College, I guess. <laughs> I mean, is that the collision course we're dealing with here? Is there anybody else out there that you think is uh, talent-wise on par with Clemson outside of Tuscaloosa? Yeah, I mean, top to bottom program-wise, I, I don't know if maybe there's any more talented teams in the country than Alabama and Clemson. They've met in the two la- the last two national championship games for a reason. Uh when it comes down to one game that can knock you out in the playoffs, though, there that that's obviously an opportunity for somebody to step up there. I, I think Oklahoma is a really good team. You know, went up and, and beat Ohio State in a tough venue. I'm interested to see if Penn State can be up there. You know, Georgia has played great so far. hasn't played you know the top notch competition, but that Notre Dame win was pretty good. They uh, crushed Mississippi State. Uh, so that's a team that Tennessee's has his soul. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's true. They, they have, uh, sort of the makings of a pretty good team for once. Maybe the sec title game isn't going to be just an, an absolute snore. Uh, but you look at like, you know, Clemson was a great team last year and Pitt beat them out of nowhere. Uh, Virginia tech, not a lot of people gave them a chance in that ACC title game. That was a close game. So, uh, you know, if this were just like uh, a European soccer league where the top teams in the regular season just like win the, the championship like that, I would say, oh, uh, yeah, I don't think anybody's going to catch them. But you catch them on a bad day in the semifinals, all of a sudden they're knocked out before they get to the championship. You catch them on a bad day in the ACC title game, uh, I think you've got a chance there. Just when you think these teams are invincible, uh, something happens uh, that, that that a team will figure out a weak spot and exploit that. And, you know, I think that's what makes college football great. Well, and that Boston College Clemson game, I guess, was tied 7 7 in the second half. Right, exactly. Did you get a fumble or a, a pick or a pick six or something like that. Who knows? That could have turned out differently as well. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to think back and, of times where. Uh, oh, this team couldn't possibly ever lose, and then out of the blue, they get beaten by a team that you wouldn't have expected. And I'm, I'm drawing a blank, but it happens all the time in college football. And, and there's maybe it actually might work to Clemson's favor right now because they could slip up in the regular season. 
and they could still get to the championship game. I mean, in the past, if you slipped up somewhere along the line, that could cost you your shot at the title. Mm -hmm. Now you can have a loss, and it happens all the time where you have a loss and you go on to win the championship. So, And their resume is pretty damn strong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right now. Uh, well, and we'll get to it later, but that's why I voted them number one is because they have such a strong resume. I mean, it would take uh, uh, catastrophic losses at the end, a string of losses at the end of the season, I think, for them not to be in the playoff if they continue to do what they're doing. Um, you know, and win the ACC title game. That that championship always helps quite a bit at the end. But even if they don't, I think they've put together a pretty good resume. That if they go, uh, you know, twelve and one and happen to lose in the ACC title game, they could still get a playoff spot. Right. Well, given all the limitations and challenges that you mentioned earlier about facing a Clemson, Clemson defense, how do you think Josh Jackson handled himself in his first uh, opportunity to play in a home game like that? Uh. Okay. I mean, I, I didn't think that he was just like completely overwhelmed. I mean, Clemson makes uh, offenses look completely hapless out there. Uh, Virginia Tech at least gained some yards. And, you know, they ended up outgaining Clemson. That was because they got some you know, uh, yardage at the end of the game there where, uh, you know, the game was decided and the Hokies kind of went down the field and scored at the end when Clemson wasn't really playing that tight of coverage. So, uh, that's a little misleading in that sense, but then you look at how uh, Clemson has defended other teams this year, and I think Louisville's the only one that has done better in a, a yards per game or a yards per play uh, average this season. So uh, it wasn't the worst start, but at the same time, you know, he made some mistakes through an interception late. You know, the pick six wasn't really on him. That was a, a drop pass by Henry Murphy that just went straight to the Clemson defender. Under a lot of pressure all day, he was only sacked once. You know, there was another sack on a, a end around that C.J. Carroll looked like he was pulling out to throw the ball. But you know, Jackson was sacked once. He was under a lot of pressure. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the worst performance, but then again, it's not like he went out there and made a ton of plays either. So you probably, if I had to grade it, I'd probably put it around a C or something like that. Yeah, on the other side of the ball, uh, Bryant, their quarterback, Clemson's quarterback, I thought. Uh, you know, connecting on a couple of those third down passes early in the game on that first drive, they only got a field goal out of that drive. But I think, you know, with Bud Foster's sort of selling out to stop the run, and that's that's a sound strategy against Clemson, who's been running the ball well, and their quarterback's been a little bit uneven in terms of throwing the ball heading into that game. But he makes some really good throws early on, and it was like, okay, if he's going to make those throws, Tech is in real trouble. Yeah, th those two plays, and then you know the touchdown that they had that went for sixty yards to the running back. You know that was a defensive breakdown on Tech's part, but Kelly Bryant stood in the pocket and went through his progressions, and he, that guy had to be the third or fourth option on that play. And he was he was calm in the pocket. He went through his reads, and he found the guy that was wide open and made the play. I mean, that's uh, yeah, a lot of inexperienced quarterbacks will not make that that kind of read and get to that that far down the progression to make that throw. So, And why was he wide open? Because of my guy, Tremaine <laughs> Edmonds, who uh, just lost him. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, that's there's what it looked of, like. A lot of things that go on uh, that we don't see, but, I mean, it looked like he was the guy that was probably supposed to be on that on that run. Yeah, and, uh, you know, that it, it's amazing. Like, just like that, 10 to nothing. Yeah. And it seems like the life is sort of ripped out of the stadium. You mentioned, you know, there's not really – you know, the Hokies fans didn't have a whole lot to cheer for in that game. Think back to that Ohio State game a couple years ago where Ohio State got off to the early lead. Virginia Tech actually led at halftime. I mean, they came back, and that place was just, like, jumping at that point. And obviously, all the air goes out of the stadium when Brewer separates his shoulder. But you never had that moment in this game. And I think a couple of those throws by Bryant early – 
I mean, they had him in third down a couple times. He made two passes. One was a really nice catch. I think it was Ray Ray McLeod that went up over Faison, who had really good coverage to make a catch. Uh, another one to Renfro, I think. They just kind of he got open down the field. But those are both on third downs. And you think of how the tenor of the game could change if you get a defensive stop there right away. And you know, Bryant made those plays. And then later he made plays with his legs. Uh, not not exactly a huge game rushing for the running backs, even though they were pretty good around the goal line on a couple runs, but, you know, Brian had 90, what do you have, 94 rushing yards in that game, uh, probably should have had a lot less, Virginia Tech had him sort of dead to rights a couple times in the backfield, and just couldn't get him on the ground, you know, Bud Foster called him a one-man wrecking crew, I don't know if I go that far with it, but uh, he, he had a pretty good game, and he was the difference offensively for Clemson, because I, I think a lot of other things they couldn't get going. Yeah, well, you know, in years past, and this is one of the ways this business has changed with technology, you know, after a game like this, I would wake up on Sunday morning and my inbox would just be filled with, you know, dozens upon dozens of emails from people who either are angry or happy or, or you know, okay with the loss because of this or that. You know, you don't really get those anymore because everyone just on Twitter just says what they feel and they don't, they don't need to vent to their, the local columnist anymore, but I know they still oh, do. They do. They do they on still, Twitter <laughs> and they do it to you too. They do it to you more often. Than they do it to me because you have a lot of opinion in your, in your coverage as well. Uh, what, what did, how would you describe the reaction of the fan base to this loss? Somewhat accepting of the situation that they're in. I mean, it was, it was basically, Oh, give Clem, give Fuente time. That's basically what it was, and I feel like that was the difference. If this was a Frank Beamer coach team, it would have been, oh, Frank can't win the big one again. That that would have been what people are saying about this. Here, Fuente has competed in this kind of game before. He sort of gets a little bit of leeway because of the way that ACC title game played out last year. Uh, but I think there is sort of an understanding that this is year two with him. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's had one recruiting class and all those guys are for or one full recruiting class that the staff has recruited. And those guys are true freshmen right now. So uh, I think that you have a little bit of time that you buy yourself when you hire a new coach like this. You go, OK, uh, obviously not on Clemson's level yet, but Clemson's been doing this for a while and Fuente has not at Virginia Tech. Uh, so that's sort of the impression that I got from people. I think it was sort of understanding of it. Maybe, you know, upset that the team didn't compete a little bit better, uh, give them a little bit more of a game. But uh, when you see Clemson go out and sort of snuff out everybody that they're playing right now, I think there's an understanding that, okay, this is a, a, a pretty good college football team and you, you have to play your best to beat them. And, and Virginia Tech didn't do that. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think – it's all about program trajectory, right? The trajectory in the later years of Frank Beamer was not great. Uh, it was either flatlining or it looked like it was going down. And this, I mean, it's clearly, and in the ESPN, and now I watched uh, the game when it came on ESPNU on Monday or Sunday night or whenever it was, and I could see them even in the second half being very complimentary of where this program is heading. And I think that also colors people's uh, viewpoints. You know, it's, it's obvious that, Fuente knows what he's doing, and it's obvious that they're ahead of schedule and they're heading in the right direction. So I don't think uh, it's it's one of those pe situations where people think everything's uh, broken. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I, it's again, it goes back to sort of what you can sell yourself about the future of a program. When a coach is in his second year and he's a 40-year-old head coach and everything looks like it's going on the up and up. I mean, the fact that they were, you know, unranked last year, now they're up to, I mean, they were 12th before this game, 16th now. 
that's still a lot better than what was happening in the sort of latter Beamer years there where they were never ranked. They were never really in the conversation outside of that one Ohio State win uh, that fizzled pretty quickly. So, uh, yeah, I, I think things are going in the right direction. Yeah, I think they aren't there yet. I, th- I think those are thoughts that the fan base can sort of wrap its mind around right now, and it's not too much of a stretch. Yeah, and it's kind of like when Tech lost in the NCAA tournament in basketball last year to your Wisconsin Badgers, you know, that it's like, okay, we're not Wisconsin yet. That's what uh, the Hokies were thinking. We're not Wisconsin yet, but with buzz at the controls, it looks like we're heading in that direction. All right. Um, Sly miss Joey Sly misses another field goal. That's six for him this year that he's missed. I, when I saw it uh, live and I saw the replay, I thought, well, that was an operational error. It looked like Brad Byrne, the holder didn't do a really um, or the snap and the hold didn't look perfect, and sometimes that can screw you up. And it, it actually didn't miss by a ton. But what is what is the coaching staff saying about Sly? And what are your thoughts on Sly on whether people should be concerned about his, uh, you know, these misses that are just not common for him? Yeah, well, I think there's a slight concern there because, like you said, he hasn't quite been like this uh, in the past. Certainly from the range that he's missing. Uh, the point they didn't give uh, us reporters much of an answer when we asked him about it on Monday was, yes, it's concerning to me. And that was it. Didn't elaborate, which made it sound a lot more worse than it was, quite honestly. And then he, he went on Tech Talk Live later in the day and gave a much longer, more you know forgiving answer where it's like, yeah, you know, the operation has been good. But Joey's just been off a little bit. You know, you're not going to come down too hard on a guy that has that sort of history at the program. But you know, they'd like him to tighten things up a little bit. I went back, uh, to, you know, that was my first thought too, is the operation wasn't good on that, that kick that they had. I watched the replay of it. It looked like Bradburn was a little slow corralling the ball and getting it down and maybe struggled with a little bit once he got the snap, but he did get it down and have it spun the right way by the time Joey was kicking it. Uh, just sometimes when that doesn't get down faster, uh, I'm sure that could throw off a kicker in his head. Uh, like Fuentes mentioned a couple times, it's not like Sly is missing these by, you know, it, as Frank used to say, he's not hoodwinking it. Right. You know, it's not like it's a, you know, off the, off the tee, like me and golf, uh, slicing into the woods or something like that, or just coming over with a duck hook. Uh, these are balls that are just sort of, sort of fading a little bit, sliding wide of the uprights. You know, the two against West Virginia were missed by maybe a foot total. Uh, this one I think was sort of similar. All that being said, you know, it's got to go through the uprights. I, I think that's sort of what the bottom line, what these coaches are saying is uh, need to be tighter with that. Uh, they mentioned it earlier that, you know, they're going to play in some close games later this year. Uh, can't be missing those because those could be very crucial. And, you know, it comes at a weird time because, you know, Joey's about to be the all-time leading scorer in Virginia Tech history. He already passed Shane Graham uh, for the most field goals in the career. And he did it in a game at ECU where he was, you know, three for three, I think, on field goals and kicked uh, more extra points than he's ever kicked in a game before because they scored so much. Uh, it's just interesting that he's moving him up and breaking all these records and obviously is a well-liked player on the team, does all this work outside of, like, everything going for him. And then it's just... At the same time, there are these struggles that you're like, man, what's going on? Like yeah. something, something is just off a little bit. So it's it's kind of an odd dichotomy there. Well, one of the things I think makes Buck Showalter, the Orioles manager, such a good manager over the long haul is that he always <laughs> comes back to track record. You know, if Manny Machado is struggling or or Adam Jones is struggling early in the season, he'll say, you got to remember these guys' track record. And I understand baseball is a longer season; it's a different uh, kind of grind, but there is 
something to that, that, uh, hey, we've seen this guy do it before. It's not like he's incapable of doing it. Uh, so I don't think it's a real reason for panic at this point. I think the other part is, you know, kickers can have fragile psyches. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that like specifically with Joey. I'm just saying the position in general, sure. you can get inside your head and all of a sudden just can't make anything. I mean, Roberto Aguayo was one of the best field goal kickers in like the history of the NCAA. And he goes to the NFL and he's cut after a year because he just can't make anything with the Buccaneers. They traded up with to take him in the second round, I think it was. It was ridiculous at the time, but like – there's almost something about that it puts extra pressure on him because it was such a high pick and they traded up to get him and, and he just got in his own head and he, he just couldn't make field goals. I think part of maybe Fuente not wanting to say a lot about it is he didn't want to add extra pressure to that situation or Joey hasn't been available for interviews for a couple of times for right. the weeks. I, I think they just don't want him talking about it more because that could compound the problem because then he's talking about it. He's thinking about it more. It becomes more pressure field in his mind. Uh, so I, I think the best thing that they could have for him right now is just to have a game that's not even close, have a field goals late that are maybe a little challenging, but that he can put through and just sort of put these issues behind him. Well, one thing Fuente's not shy about criticizing or doing is uh, firing his tailbacks when they fumble or when they uh, miss blocks. Uh, he actually <laughs> used the term firing on the postgame show. I, fi- I fired – I had to fire two guys out there. Um, Trayvon McMillan had that huge fumble. I don't think anybody can look at that fumble and say that wasn't pretty much the death knell for Virginia Tech in that game. It happened right after they got a stop to start the third quarter defensively. And then they, you know, at midfield, like too. Yeah, it was like the second play. Um, and then McLeese missed a block that I guess led to either a sack or a pick or something. It was on the CJ Carroll when he was rolling out to throw it, throw it. Okay. Uh, they sort of hung him out to dry, and Carroll had no shot there. And, and that sort of. Uh, killed that scoring chance on that drive. Well, that puts Coleman Fox in the game, and he looks pretty good again. Uh, you know, he made some catches, uh, ran the ball pretty well. Uh, he, you know, I know there's local people out here that want to know if, if Coleman can get in the mix. I was not encouraged when I heard the, the question asked of what uh, what Fuente thought of Fox and Fox, and he basically said, "Well, we'll see." But it didn't sound like, "Well, he's really worked his way into the mix." Uh, Sound like a, a one-off deal here. Yeah, there's no more fascinating thing than to see like sort of how Fuente uh, operates at his tailback position versus what people expect or what the norm has been around here. I mean, for the, I think people have finally gotten over the idea of like, oh, a guy is going to get 25 carries in this offense. Like, it's just not going to happen. Right. They're just going to have multiple guys doing it. But there's also this make one mistake and you're out. You are persona non grata for the rest of this game if you fumble. Uh, if you miss a block uh, on a crucial play later, you're just like out. It's just like, it's like, uh, yeah, Jim Beheim is pretty famous for that in basketball where a guy makes like a critical mistake and he just like twirls to his bench and like points to the next guy. It's like, you're out of there immediately. That's what they're like with their running backs. And, um, it's strange cause they don't really do that with any other position on the field. Uh, maybe a receiver a little bit cause those guys shuttle in and out of the game, but man, running back, you make a mistake and you were just out. Uh, and I don't quite know why that's the case with only running backs. And it's not even that you're just out for that game. You are out for a while. I mean, it, it seems that way, I doesn't it? I wouldn't be stunned if, if we didn't see much of Trayvon at all on this Saturday. I would. I, I think they'll come back to him. Uh, I think you have to. Uh, you know, you mentioned Coleman Fox. I think part of the reason they got to that point on the depth chart is, you know, Stephen Peoples wasn't playing because he had an ankle injury. He didn't dress. 
Uh, Trayvon had the fumble. McLeese missed the block. Uh, Jalen Holston is a guy they have gone to early in the week, earlier in the year. He was sick the previous week. Apparently he lost a lot of weight. Uh, Fuente said he just didn't quite feel comfortable putting him in in that situation. Uh, and Coleman Fox is there. He's done okay, but like like you said, it, it wasn't like Fuente came out and said, like, yeah, he's really got a shot to get in here. The way I read it was they didn't really have any other options at that point. They went to Coleman Fox. So I, I think if Peoples is healthy, he's probably the guy that's starting this week. I would think they would try to give uh, Trayvon and Deshaun McLeese another shot. But, uh, like, <laughs> I mean, it's just one little set, setback like that at running back. and it's, it's, Like, if, if an offensive lineman has a 15-yard chop block penalty, it's not like, get out of the game. Like, right. you're, you're out of here, Wyatt Taylor, for the rest of the game. Like, I feel like they have a little more patience at that. I don't know why running back is a position where it's just like, you're done – Go sit on the bench and think about what you've done for a while. Well, you say Coleman Fox has done okay. I call me a timesland homer, but I think he's done much better than okay. He's shown some burst. I mean, he, like I said, he made some catches too. He's, I he's not slow out there. He's pretty fast. Um, I don't know. I I think I think when we're talking about depth charts and offense and who's getting shots and who isn't, I think there's another guy we probably should should talk about, Andy. Who's that, Aaron? That's right. It's time for the Pimpleton That's Minute. That's the hard cut. <laughs> that was just like, all right, no fade out. Cut it out. Uh, Pimpleton Minute will be fast again today. Uh, he did not play. All I have to say is that the second leading receiver for Virginia Tech on Saturday night was C.J. Carroll with three catches for 45 yards. That's not a lot of yards. You need a jitterbug out there. Go out there and make some plays. Let's go, Fuente. Yeah, probably. Did you our, our setup on that is like very – you remember the show You Can't Do That on Television? Of course. A Nickelodeon. Slimed and all that? Yeah, they would have like the very setup is like, oh, Alistair, because it was a Canadian show. Like, Alistair, did you know this? It's like, what's that? Tell me about it. And then they would go to the joke. That's what our setup sounds like at this point. It's that forced and rehearsed. All right, let's move on to let's move on to Boston College. Uh, we will both be there. It won't be cheap to get us there, and it won't be cheap to stay there because thanks Boston, Red Sox. Yeah, the Red Sox have a home game there on Sunday against Cleveland no, and Houston. I'm sorry, Houston. Yeah, yeah. and and it's just uh, the all the hotels are are massively jacked up. I understand in a place like Martinsville when there's a big race, <laughs> like how there's not a lot of hotels in, in Ridgeway and Martinsville proper, but Boston's a big city, man. What's the deal? Well, it's expensive to go to Boston in the first place. So even a slight hike is going to put these at astronomical prices. But, the, I mean, if you want to find a reasonable price, you got to stay way outside the city. And to do that, you have to get a rental car. The rental cars are jacked up in prices, too. So uh, I think Berkshire Hathaway is just going to have to eat it on this one. It's, it's not going to be a cheap trip to get up there to cover this game. No. And while we're up there, we'll get a look at the offense run by Scott Leffler. You wrote a little bit about Scott uh, today's paper. We're taping this on Wednesday. Uh, what, did, what did you write about Scott, and how's his offense been up there in uh, Boston College? Uh, not great. Not great, Bob. Uh, he didn't exactly walk into a ready-made situation at BC. I think they were 127th out of 128 teams when he took over that offense in total offense. Uh, they are not a whole lot better. They're running the ball a little bit better. They got a couple running backs, John Hilleman, AJ Dillon, I think is a freshman. He's like a 240 pound guy, uh, sort of have some power running game there that I think they're 159 yards a game on the ground. 
Uh, the issue is they just haven't really been able to pass the ball. I mean, only Georgia Tech throws the ball for fewer yards per game in the ACC, and Georgia Tech is an option offense. So that's not a very positive sign. Uh, it's been a struggle. It's been a struggle for that offense. You know, maybe not exactly when Andre Williams left. He was the 2,000-yard rusher in 2013. I think they had an okay offense, uh, certainly okay enough to beat Virginia Tech in 2014. But since then, it has just been a struggle yeah. for to get anything going up there. They've had a tremendous defense, not quite as good this year, but but the offense has really put them in tough spots. Uh, you know, I think Leffler kind of runs the same thing that he did at Tech with lots of shifting and a lot of big tight end personnel sets and stuff. But uh, I think it's going to take him a while to get the kind of personnel that they want up there, and I don't know if they're going to have a long while to do it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the defense isn't normally what it is. I mean, that's one thing you could normally count on for Boston colleges. They're going to be great defensively, and they're going to really challenge you defensively. And I think if you look at that Clemson game and you say, oh, 7-7 in the, you know, in the fourth quarter or heading into the fourth quarter, uh, you, you may get a misrepresentation of how they've done overall. I mean, I was looking up their stats the other day. I mean, they're 10th in the ACC in total defense. Uh, they're giving up a lot of rushing yards, a ton of rushing yards. They're one of the worst in the country giving up rushing yards. Uh, what's going on with their defense, man? Uh, I mean, you talk to the tech coaches, and of course they're going to – lavish this this program with praise and how tough they are and big and physical and all those things but it's not showing in the results yeah i don't know i i think yeah you know, obviously have some talents over there harold landry is as good as it gets in the in the acc possibly the country is a pass rusher uh i think sometimes when the offense just isn't producing and virginia tech fans know this it just puts all the weight of holding a team in the game on the defense and there's really only so much you can do at a certain point i mean last year's boston college defense was was really good i think and virginia tech still steamrolled them 49 to nothing and in the end of the you know bc's defense was it was a valiant effort for much of the game but when you're on the field all the time and you just don't really have a shot of scoring. You have to take some chances, and eventually that catches up to you. Now, I will say, I think Clemson ran for like 390 yards or 370 yards on them. So something is obviously not quite right uh, with the Eagles and, and haven't quite been the same kind of defense. But uh, yeah, it's been a struggle. It's, it's not like, oh, this is a top 10 defense like they've had in the past. The offense just can't do anything. They've struggled defensively as well. Well, you know I love Steve Adazio, their head coach. I, you, He's a dude. You He's know, your I, dude. Every year when we would go down to that uh, ACC football kickoff, I would always request to be uh, the guy that did BC because I just loved sitting and talking to him and listening to him. He's an old offensive lineman. And he's an offensive lineman at heart. You know, I played offensive line in high school. I, I appreciate the position and I appreciate the philosophy that he had of just you know toughness and, and grit and Can all. Can he that. get a yard? Yeah, all that stuff just. But man, it's it's been a tough, tough time for him. How much longer does he have? Do you think? I don't know. I mean, they you look at their yeah, they got to a bowl game last year, barely. They got to the Detroit Bowl, a quick lane bowl, and beat uh, your Maryland Terps in a that's right a high scoring affair. My father was there, thirty six to thirty, which is I think more points than BC scored against anybody. It's a highly entertaining game. Yeah, my yeah. dad paid an arm and a leg. <laughs> that's right. I remember your dad telling that story. And they actually sent him a, a renewal <laughs> this year. They said you're a loyal quick lane bowl attendee, and he, of course he lives in Maryland. And uh, that's 
So they offered him a special deal to get tickets sight unseen on who the opponents would be in this year's Quick Lane Bowl. He kindly turned them down. Yeah, that's probably a smart idea. Uh, you know, Adazio, I thought he got off to a pretty good start on a team that was not great when he took it over. And he sort of took what they had and molded it to be a, a hard-nosed team. And those first two years, 7-6, and 7-6, six, 4-4 and six, four and four in the conference both years get to a bowl game. Uh, since then, they are 2-16 and 16 in the ACC. Uh, that is not good. That, no. That's not bode well for how you're going to be back competing with, you know, in that Atlantic division with Florida State and Clemson and Louisville now and NC State even is, is I have them in my top 25. Uh, there's a new AD there. Uh, the guy who hired him is no longer the AD. I think that might play into it. Uh, it's just, I mean, if they go 0-8 in the ACC again this year, 1-7, uh, you've not won more than two games in the ACC in, the, in any of the last three seasons, then you just kind of have to wonder how much longer you get the guy there. I mean, I know Boston College is not going to be a program that's going to be getting top 10 classes or anything like that. You, like, you need to find a guy like Adazio that can recruit to that system, find a way to get guys up in the Northeast, which you know, quite honestly, I think is, is how Boston College plays. I mean, it's it's a you know big offensive lineman, tough running backs. That's sort of that style up there, I would say. So that's what you have to recruit to, or you need to be somebody that can find somebody like Matt Ryan. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, it's amazing to think that ten years ago this team was at one point the number two team in the country. Uh, oh, how times have changed since then. But I mean, it's it's rough up there. I mean, they got to they got to do something. And I I honestly don't know if they're going to find enough on the current staff and the current roster to be able to turn that thing around in time for this coaching staff. Yeah, it's an AFC North style. It's a cold weather style of play that they do. I heard them talking on the. It's going to be a middle drill on the Dan. That was a good quote. I liked that from. He Bud. says that every year. I think I, that was uh, in the story he, last year yeah. at the time too. I, I was wondering why you didn't save that one for the, the advance. I guess you've heard it before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was heard heard him talking on the Dan Levitard show about Temple alumni, you know, the, these coaches to take over Temple and win, and then people are like, "Wow, you won at Temple, you must be good." But I guess the track record of some of these ex-Temple coaches isn't great, is it? Well, as Al Golden goes to Miami, yeah, right? Uh, you know, Adazio replaces him. Nah, Who's has the most has recent one? Matt Rule okay. goes to Baylor. Oh yeah, right. Maybe a bit early to judge Matt Rule on his Baylor tenure. I think there's uh, some culture changing that has to go under on uh, in Waco before they can really think about winning a lot of ball games. That said, you probably shouldn't be losing to Liberty uh, in your first game. But yeah, maybe maybe it's easier to win at Temple than people give it credit. I mean, currently, Temple is leaping giant. Currently, Temple is uh, really bad. Uh, they're getting sort of run over. So maybe it has to go into a down cycle before the current coach. You know, I think Jeff Collins. I think that's who the current coach is before he can turn things around. But uh, it is kind of interesting that uh, I mean I think you can see why some of these guys jump at the first opportunity to leave Temple. Uh, because it's tough to sustain it there, and then maybe you get exposed a little bit if you're at Temple for too long. But yeah, it hasn't been the greatest track record of guys. It's sort of like uh, you know Belichick defensive coordinators or offensive coordinators going somewhere else. It's like they just don't kind of succeed somewhere else. And I don't know if that's something specific to Temple, but it is an interesting pattern. Folks, if if Jeff Collins is indeed the coach of Temple, which I, I can't confirm or deny. You're now, you're now, right he even now. spelled it right. He just Googled it and he spelled it with a G E O F F. I mean, this is why Andy Bitter is our, our representative on the AP top 25 voting poll. How does he know this stuff? 
That is uh, very impressive. Florida defensive coordinator before that, Mississippi State before that. Okay, I never would have known that. You know, I should have mentioned this with Leffler before. Uh, it was just on my mind. He recruited Josh Jackson. Yeah. I mean, I know Virginia Tech fans will uh, do not have the highest opinion of him, I think is a polite way of saying it, uh, based on a lot of the responses I get. I think he left the offense in a better shape than he did uh, than it was when he got there. I think it's, you know, it's sort of unfair to put all the blame of Virginia Tech's decade-plus struggles on offense on him. And certainly some of Fuente's success in that first year was on the fact that they had guys like Isaiah Ford and Cam Phillips and Wyatt Taylor and Sam Rogers in place. Uh, but if nothing else, uh, Josh Jackson is sort of a nice parting gift to Virginia Tech that he left. Didn't have the most success with quarterbacks panning out in terms of uh, high school recruits that he had. Andrew Ford uh, ended up transferring. He's at UMass right now. Uh, Chris Durkin transferred. I think he's a tight end at Youngstown State. I haven't exactly checked in to see how he's doing there. Dwayne Lawson uh, flamed out, ended up leaving in the junior college route uh, last year. Uh, But Josh Jackson, that was a pretty good get for him. And I know Fuente ended up going there and and signing him, but Leffler laid a lot of the groundwork for him to come here. So if if that's the, the legacy that he leaves at Virginia Tech is that uh, Josh Jackson ends up being a three or four year starter. That that's actually pretty good. Well, I think the world thinks that Virginia Tech's going to win this game, and we'll get to our predictions at the end. But just you know, as you were saying about you know any given Saturday and all those things, how damaging would a loss be if if the Eagles were to jump up and bite Virginia Tech this weekend? That'd be pretty bad, I think. That that would sort of. Uh... You know, be it would uh, pierce the armor that Fuente has had so far that this team responds to losses. Uh, you look at how they came back from the Tennessee loss. They probably had their best stretch of football last year where they just crushed BC and East Carolina and then went down the, in the rain and, and just manhandled North Carolina. Uh, they had the disappointment at Syracuse. Obviously, that was a big letdown game. But then they came back and they beat Miami on a Thursday night and they go up to Pittsburgh and win there for the first time in, in yeah, however many years it was, uh, let down against Georgia Tech at home late in the year, and then they go to Notre Dame and win, and then they just completely dismember Virginia in the finale. I think there's sort of this thought that, yeah, they might lose a game every now and then, but Fuente is, is good enough as a coach that they're going to turn it around right away and have a really solid performance. Uh, so I guess that's sort of what's on the line right now. They had a disappointing loss against Clemson. It was maybe an understandable loss given where the two programs were, but how are they going to respond to that? And uh, you know, he he beats that one and men- mentality every week. This is a perfect opportunity to show that it has gotten through to the team and that they can put a loss like that behind them and, and go beat a team that, quite frankly, they should. Yeah, they had a record-setting or record-tying offensive performance in their first road true road game of the season at, at East Carolina. We all know East Carolina's not good, but still, they played very well uh, down in East Carolina. And if you look at the schedule and you look at where they're going from here, I mean, if you're going to win the Coastal Division, which is now your, you know, your sole goal now that you're not a top 10 contender at this point, um, you're going to have to win games on the road. You're going to have to win at Miami. You're going to have to win at Georgia Tech in all likelihood. Maybe not. Maybe you can. And Virginia. And this Virginia. year may be a little more of a challenge than it has been recently. We'll, we'll see if this is a, a fool's gold start with the Cavaliers, but they don't look quite like the old UVA right now. Yeah, so to me, that's what this this Saturday is about. I mean, it's an opportunity to you know show your medal on the road and and get a and a, get a win in a place that historically has been kind of tough for Virginia Tech. 
very tough at some points, but you know, with the new coaching staff and everything, I don't think people uh, believe in the curses they used to. No, and, and I, in my pick that we'll make later, uh, that sort of factored in. Yeah, uh, you know, before you'd be like, there are certain points in the past where you go, this is a Beamer letdown game. You can see it coming, or this is a place that Beamer's teams have never played well. Uh, you know, ECU always gives them trouble. I've sort of been stuck in that mindset the last couple of years. I am no longer thinking that way with East Carolina. Maybe that's because of the staff that East Carolina has right now is kind of a mess. But uh, I don't necessarily go into it going, they, you know, they never play well at BC because I think this is a different group that's going up there. They never played well at Pittsburgh. That was the case last year, and they won that game. Uh, so I think there's you have to reframe how you think about these things. Oh, they can't score enough points to beat this team. They can score points on anybody, I think, save for Clemson, the best defense in the country, perhaps. Uh, I think you have to sort of you know recalibrate how you think about some of these things. And if they play their game, I think they should go up to BC and, and win pretty easily. Well, that said, we'll still beat that drum with Syracuse when next time they go back up there. But that won't be for, what, 12 years? <laughs> yes, that's 11 years from now. So they got some time to, to ruminate on that one. All right, let's look at your ballot. Any uh, really big movers and shakers in your ballot this week? Well, I spoiled it before Clemson. I put it number one. And amazingly, I move a team like Alabama down that's outscored its opponents like 115 to three the last two weeks. Uh, It was tough to do that. But if I'm going to make these ballot picks based on resume and not just on reputation, Clemson has the better resume. I mean, three top 15 wins this year. Uh, Alabama's best win now, Florida State, doesn't look that great. I mean, at the beginning of the year, we're thinking these are the two best teams in the country. Now I'm like, is Florida State going to make a bowl game? Uh, uh, yeah, they'll make a bowl game. Yeah, I think they will. But you know, the, they play Miami this week. Could very well lose to Miami. You're they one, opened you're as one a in favorite three. in that game. Can you believe that? Yeah, I, the I think they, they get reversed. Oh, I'm just saying, you lose to Miami. You're you're one in three. You have one less game than you normally would. This yeah. like the the freebie win that you get. I'm just saying. It's not out of the realm of possibility that this team could be at the end of the year trying to to get over the hump to get to a bowl game. Uh, you know, you still play Clem or still play Louisville, still play NC State, which is a lot more competitive than it's been. Still play Florida at the end of the year. I know Florida is not. Uh, you know, it's about as shaky of a top twenty-five team as there is, but it is possible. I'm just saying that Florida State win doesn't look like oh the the you know battle of the titans like it was uh, before the season. So. Taking all that into account, I think Clemson has the better resume right now. I moved them past Alabama. Uh, I think there's like a poll thing that like keeps track of like whether people agree with your poll or not. I was checking that. I stumbled across it this week, and I had like minus 20 votes on that. I think that yeah. might – a lot of that might be from Alabama fans who maybe disagree with me dropping them one spot to second <laughs> in that. But uh, that was the big thing. Uh, and I moved Washington State up quite a bit this week after beating USC. They're into the top 10. Uh, only dropped the Hokies to 16th. That's actually where they ended up finishing. Uh, maybe kind of surprised that they didn't take a, a further tumble just based on how people treat losses uh, in the poll. Uh, I'm the lowest voter on South Florida in the fact that I don't have them ranked. I'm the only person that doesn't have them ranked. Uh, this caught the attention of a South Florida beat writer who pointed it out in an article, so I got a couple people tweeting at me. Actually, very polite. Uh, they're, they're not playing Alabama this week, though, right? No, they're not. They have, they have a bye week this week. But uh, they, they like a lot of people, it wasn't one, – one was sort of an outrageous comment. It's like, oh, he probably had ECU plus 22 and a half and the under in that game. It's like, trust me, having seen ECU play, I would not have taken those bets if I were a gambling man. Uh, other people are just like, what do we have to do to get ranked? And I'm like, beat somebody. 
Like beat beat Terps. anybody. They beat the Terps. <clears throat> That's Central Florida. Oh. I have Central Florida ranked. Okay. Uh, USF has beaten San Jose State, Stony Brook, barely. Like they struggled against Stony Brook. Uh, Illinois, Temple, and East Carolina. Yeah. And they beat East Carolina 61 to 31, but it, they gave up 31 points to East Carolina. That is not exactly a great resume to me. I know they're 5-0. and uh, When your best win is against Illinois, who is only not the worst Big Ten team because Rutgers exists, that is not a strong case for being a top 25 team. So apologies to the Bulls. You have a game against Houston coming up in a couple of weeks. You play UCF at the end of the season. I'm going to have to see maybe a little bit more out of that team. Before I, I think some people have them ranked like 12th in the country, which I think is just outrageous. Uh, maybe I, I have them a little bit lower than they should be by not having them ranked, but they're probably in that 26, 27, 28 range if I were extending the poll. Uh, it, it's it's tough to, to, to kind of figure out exactly where these teams are when you haven't exactly played anybody like USF. So we, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, it's quite possible they could be in the rankings even without playing next week if a couple teams ahead of them lose. Let me just tell these South Florida fans, slow your roll because it's a Andy is vindicated whenever people <laughs> tweet to him that he's made mistakes. Uh, well, yeah, not with LSU. <laughs> LSU, I should have dropped them out. People called me out on it. They were correct. I did drop them out the next week when they did not look very impressive against Syracuse in a win, uh, and then they go and lose to Troy this week. So it was obvious LSU was not deserving of a ranking uh, so I'll give them that one. Vanderbilt, however, you did not deserve to be ranked, did, and you got spanked because of it. Did my Terps get your attention by winning as a 13-point pup at, uh, at Minnesota no. to move to 1-0 in the Big Ten? No, because Minnesota's no good, and also the Terps lost by like 30 to Central Florida well, that, that at home. That quarterback looked good, that German guy that Maryland has Hindenburg or whatever. I mean, he's, he's lining kugels. He, he looks pretty <laughs> If his good. name is truly Hindenburg, that is maybe not the greatest <laughs> greatest name for, like, great things. It's like, can't see a disaster coming with Hindenburg <laughs> here. Kinda. Hindenburg. I felt like it was Hindenburg until I saw him play this past weekend. He looked really good. All right, before we get to our predictions, quick note about the MLB playoffs. I know you're in mourning this morning because – you, you, your twins have lost, and I'm sorry to hear that as well. I made a short-term investment on those guys myself, um, and I was pulling for them. But uh, who do you like going forward here as we – I mean, I think if Arizona – and this is going to sound really stupid if Arizona gets beat by Colorado tonight. But I think if Arizona gets out of this game tonight, they they might be a threat to – and that's really, really a strong statement. They might be. Uh, I think they've got the kind of team that could make one of those crazy runs. Yeah, I don't know about that. Okay. I like uh, – it's chalky, but I like the Indians and the Nationals to get to the World Series. Uh, although, you say I'm in mourning today. I kind of expected the Twins to lose because they always lose to the Yankees. Uh, they gave me this brief moment of joy in that first inning where it was just like homer after homer, and they, they chase Severino after a third of an inning, and Yankee Stadium's like in shock, which is the greatest feeling ever. Uh, as a Yankee hater like myself, I could stick it to Mike Barber for a half an inning, which was kind of nice on Twitter. Yeah. And then the Yankees come storming back. They have eight guys out of the bullpen throwing 100 who can close games. It's like, oh my God, how is anybody going to get a run off of this bullpen? That's That would be the thing if I were the Indians that would scare the heck out of me is, yeah, the, the Yankees don't have many starters. But if they get to that bullpen with any kind of lead, how are you going to come back against that? I just think the depth of pitching that the Indians have is so great that 
it's going to be tough for anybody to overcome that in the American League. And, uh, you know, I think the Nationals are kind of that way, too. If Scherzer's healthy in Strasburg, Gio Gonzalez, I mean, I know the Dodgers have a really good staff, but have not historically done that well in the playoffs. Uh, I think that would be a really interesting World Series if it was the Nationals versus the Indians. I'd, I'd watch that. I think the Astros don't sleep on them either. I mean, they don't they don't strike out. And in the postseason when it's cold and, you know, everybody, all these teams like the Orioles that just all they do is hit home runs and they don't hit home runs in the cold when, you know, and their offense kind of falls apart. That's not going to happen with Astros, man. And I think they've got a pretty easy matchup with a Red Sox team that somehow won the American League East without, uh, I mean, I know they got Chris Sale. And that's a big deal. But beyond him, I, I you know, the, all the, I, I went back and looked at all the Salem Red Sox guys who are, you know, like the Mookie Betts and the Xander Bogart. Everyone's having a down year from last year. Almost everyone offensively. It's almost like you take David Ortiz out of that lineup and there's yeah. not as much protection to guys and there's mm-hmm. not as much confidence there. Uh, yeah, the, what I like about this is we're talking about the Indians that I know they made the World Series last year, but you know longest drought I think now World Series drought that's out there. The Astros who have never won it, uh, the Nationals, former Expos who have never won it. Uh, you you brought up the Diamondbacks who have won it, but it, I think people have forgotten about that. You know, it's sixteen years ago when they won it. Broken bat single up the middle. Yeah, How forget plus that? they had like real, they had really hideous uniforms back then. They still have hideous uniforms now, but they're different colors, so maybe I don't associate them as being the same team like that. But you now it's teams that haven't been in it for a while. So if like the Yankees and the Red Sox lose, I'm fine with that. Get the Cubs out of there. They've been a lousy team all year. I, I don't want to see them back in this thing. Uh get some new blood in the World Series and I mean, I say new blood. The Indians could get back there. I, th- I think the Indians will win it, and I think that'd be pretty interesting to see them win it because they were so close last year. And you know, long-suffering Cleveland uh, baseball fans—that'd that, be something neat to see. Yeah, my official pick. I was asked on the radio this week. It was Indians over Cubs rematch with Indians winning. You think I know the that Cubs will get there. I I just I don't. I don't know. Something about Washington. Maybe it's all the Washington sports fan whining that goes on every time they lose a series in, in the Capitals or the Bullets or whoever. I mean, they're just like, oh. First of all, I don't want to hear it from Nationals fans. I, oh, we never I, get there. It's like you've it. existed as a franchise for like a little over 10 years. Like, give me a break. I don't want to hear about this. Yeah. Anytime you're in the postseason, you you should be thankful. And I'm, I'm thankful that you woke up this morning and you were thankful for the season that you just experienced. And it kind of stinks that Buxton only got like three innings before they had to take him out. He hurt, he made that amazing catch at the wall. Then he got hurt and, and they had to take him out. It's like, man, I really want to see that guy in a full postseason game. Like he deserved to be in a full postseason game so people can see sort of how far he's come. Well, on the bright side, he got to play for two hours in those three minutes. Those three <laughs> yeah, that's innings. a good point. Also, yeah. kind of disappointed that the Twins didn't go to Bartolo Colon in the bullpen yeah. because, like, hey, just put the fat man in. Let let him play. Absolutely, he's actually been decent for the Twins. Uh, couldn't have pitched much worse than Irv Santana or Barrios did, and that uh, Barrios, however you say his last Barrios, name, I, yeah. I'm still not sure of that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it could have pitched better, but you know, can't be too disappointed with a team that lost 100 games last year and made the playoffs. No doubt. Okay, moving on to our predictions. The line is Virginia Tech by 16 and a half. I've lost count now that I've lost a few of these picks, including last week's. I have lost count of where we stand with this. Maybe I'll go back at some point, but I want to say I'm two and three against the spread. I think I'm in that day. I'm five and zero oh in picking winners, but you know that's not too tough to do. Yeah, yeah, the spread's what matters. Will Tech cover? Will Tech win first of all, and then Will Tech cover? 
Uh, in the past, I would say trap game. I'd say trap game. You got the bye week coming up. You know, this team can overlook BC. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen here. I think they're a better team than BC. Uh, the Eagles have struggled stopping the run. I think the, the Hokies can get something going on that. I, I think Bud Foster knows what Scott Leffler is going to try to do. Uh, last year, they just sort of suffocated everything that, that Boston College tried to do offensively. Uh, I think they win this one somewhat comfortably. I'm going to say it's a 31 to 10 final. I'm going 42 to 42 to 10 as well. You're going to even a bigger number than me. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I just and and if they if they do play poorly in this one, that I think that will be a, a big red flag moving forward. You know, if they eke out a win or something like that, I think it's a it would not be uh, something where you just say, well, they went one and oh, so it's okay. You know, if they, if they can't win this one convincingly, I think you do say, well, maybe let's tap the brakes on, on them being the, the favorite or co-favorite in the, in the coastal division. Yeah. Let me go 34, 10. I'm going to up it by three points. Okay. I feel, I feel better about that number. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know if this game will necessarily tell you a whole lot about Virginia tech as a team. Uh, I think it's a, obviously an opponent that they should beat. Uh, it's a venue that they should go in. You know, they won the, a couple years ago. They went in there and won pretty handily. I don't think it should be like, oh, they never win at this place. They, they've won there before. They should be able to go in there and handle that. Uh, I think if you can get to the bye week, five and one, with your only loss being to the team that's uh, number two in the country right now, has an argument to me, number one. I think that's as good of a first half as you could have asked for. And obviously the, the, the crucial game's coming up. Every game against the Coastal Division is in the second half of the season. But, uh, you know, I look at the Coastal right now. You know, Miami and Georgia Tech, I think, are the teams to beat, along with Virginia Tech up there. Uh, Pitt has not been good this year. UNC, I think, maybe is the worst team in the con- in the division. Yeah, uh, agreed. You know, Duke, I, I thought Duke had some sneaky good potential, and then they looked really lousy last week against Miami's defense. Uh, UVA better than you would think, but... Uh, still, I have some questions about whether they're quite there yet. Uh, some, it, it's maybe not as deep of a uh, division it's been in a couple years. Uh, I think that Virginia Tech has as good of a shot as anybody is winning it. Why is this game at 7.15 p.m.? <sighs> I don't know. I've been asking myself that question since they announced it. Uh, I think it's just because the Hokies were you know, up to number 12 when they made the announcement. When you're that highly ranked you get nighttime game times. I, I mean, I didn't look at the rest of the schedule to see what else was out there, but if this was unranked Virginia Tech and unranked Boston College, that's a noon start. I mean, it's a pretty much a guarantee. Uh, the fact that it was a, a team that was pushing the top 10, I think they want to get those teams in primetime. That's just how they got it. Okay. Well, we'll see if Virginia Tech can start inching its way back up towards the top 10 and by getting a win on the road this weekend. We'll have coverage on Roanoke.com all weekend long. Please check that out. For Andy Bitter, this is Aaron McFarling. We'll talk to you next week.